0: Interview number 57, Michael Cotter, Farming the Heartland of American Storytelling.
1: Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories.
0: Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors.
1: Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know
2: yourself. Follow your passion.
1: And live with grace.
0: Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. And I'm Eric Wolf, and I'm so grateful that you have taken the time, that you have made it important to take storytelling in your life, to accept storytelling into your life, and to take that step, that next step on the path of taking storytelling as seriously as it can be taken so that you understand the role and the gift and the hope that storytelling offers us in our lives and in our world. I have found for you today, I have found for you A Man of the Earth. And this gentleman has inspired me because when I began to explore what it means to be an environmental storyteller, I began to examine what it means to belong to a place. And listening to his story told during the Oracle Awards, I felt... That echo of place so concretely and so real. I mean, the story he was telling was not even really about the place. The place was just in the background, but the place, the farm that he's farmed for many decades, that farm is as real to me as any piece of land I've walked on. And I just found that so amazing, and I wanted to bring him into the show to let him talk a little bit about how, how we can do that in our storytelling. Michael Cotter was the host of Remember When on KAUS AM Radio in Austin, Minnesota. He's the founder and director of the Minnesota Storytelling Festival. He's produced a video production of Stories of Healing. He's produced a number of books, memories, a collection of personal stories. A storyteller is a soybean growing up on a Minnesota farm, and a number of CDs as well. Stories of the land, people of the earth, dad's stories and farm memories he's appeared at the smithsonian festival at the national storytelling festival at the illinois storytelling festival and many other wonderful festivals around the country michael has a particular gift that he has given the storytelling community he was one of those who came first and he is considered by many storytellers an elder of the community um thank you michael for coming on my show
1: (laughs) it's really good to be here with you
0: so do you have a story you can share with us
1: well, I was I I guess the first story I ever told was probably the one that uh identifies me most. And you have to understand I was from this farm as the youngest of eight children, I was born in 1931, born at home like people were in that time. And when you're youngest of eight children, you know, you are used to being told to uh Be quiet because others are more important than you, especially during that time. So when I became a storyteller, which no one, I don't think, planned on, and never was on a stage because most everyone in my neighborhood went to a country school, but my mother was very uh, entrenched in the Catholic religion, and so we drove four coal miles to go to parochial school so we could be taught by the nuns. Now, she said we were privileged, and I don't know if that was true or not. Because of my position, one of two boys on that farm, at a time when it was pretty labor-intensive and we had big draft horses, and that's what we worked with in my youngest years. But because my father was older, he's 55 when I was born, and my brother, my only brother, was the one next to me, yeah, three and a half years older. Uh, we pretty much had to come home from school and help every night. So when they asked if he wanted to be in a play or anything, I always knew I couldn't. So I had never been on a stage till I got involved in storytelling at very near the age of fifty. When I got my first opportunity in Minneapolis, because in my town, Austin, a town of about twenty thousand people. We've been there for generations. Our farm has been there since 1876. And people knew me, and I thought they would laugh when they heard I was wanting to be a storyteller because they had another term for that in our community, that rural community. It had to do with the fertilizer program. And I just didn't want to face that all the time. So I I went to Minneapolis to a theater to do my first story on a stage... And I was scared to death because of big city and a kind of an unusual district of Minneapolis. And so when I got up on that stage, scared to death of being there and looked out on those people, I wanted to tell them who I was. And so I said, my name is Michael Cotter. I'm a third generation farmer from Austin, Minnesota, where that land is flat and that soil is black and a lot of those farms have been in the same families for over a 100 years and ours is one of those. But this started changing rapidly in what started in the Depression, actually. The farm started getting larger. But in the, in the, I believe in the 60s, it really changed very rapidly, the 1960s. And I think it was the introduction of the 100-horsepower tractor. Prior to that, we had 20, 30. The biggest tractor on our farm was 50 horse. And that doesn't seem like much now. But in the 1960s, they came with 100 horse and that doesn't sound really big but it was a lot of power and they had to double the wheels on those tractors to utilize the power that diesel engine could seem to crank out a lot of power and they came with a hundred horse and then pretty soon they came with a 200 horse and the four-wheel drives were there and on the city i have to tell people a four-wheel drive tractor has eight big tires that stand as tall as i am and i'm about six foot tall Pretty soon they came with the 300 oars and there didn't seem to be any limit to the power. And it was a new era. Well, to use the power, we needed large fields. And on that flat, black land that we farm, we dug drainage ditches. Now, a drainage ditch is a ditch maybe 10, 12, 14 feet deep. But the water only runs in the bottom 2 or 3 feet in the dry season. And on that ditch bank, we have tile drainage tile and they run out they run out like spider webs into the low areas and the swamps get drained and the lowland gets drained and the fields get large they get very large and the story i want to tell you is coming along one of the edge of these drainage ditches on a spring day and a tractor the a four-wheel drive tractor with those eight big tires turning fast and i was pulling a disc It was 30-some feet wide and going along, and that black diesel smoke rolling from this tractor, and it was just a typical spring day, but I was running along the edge of one of these drainage ditches. And all of a sudden in front of me is a bird, and it's called a killdeer and they are usually found on the land. There always seems to be about the same number of them and they're a land bird and and when they run along the land, it looks like they're floating almost there. Now the killdeer has a special characteristic. It's in the way they protect their nest because see their eggs are placed in among these little stones that were brought up from deep in that earth, the little tiny stones and they place their eggs in among them and the eggs look exactly like the stones. You can't see them. And the way this bird pretend, protects her nest is by pretending she does drama. And so I've seen this many times. And in in, you have to imagine this big tractor rolling fast and this bird in front of it. And she pretends she's crippled, and that's how she leads her enemies away from her nest. And she pretends she's crippled, and so her one wing is dragging, and she's trying to take this tractor and this big disc off to the side. And she's just staying clear of these uh, tires that are rolling fast, these big tires. And, of course, there's nothing I can do because I know I can't see her eggs. and, And so it's nothing to do but keep going, and I know that nest is not too far away. And pretty soon she's back in front of me again. Now she's really crippled. Both wings are broken. She's just tumbling along the ground, just staying clear of these big tires and trying desperately to pull me off to the side. And of course I know. I know I can't see the nest. I know there's nothing to do but keep going. She's back a third time. I don't see her the third time. I hear a piercing screech and the screech was so loud, it came in above the sound of that diesel engine into my cab, and I look down in front of it, and it's like life. She's taking her stand. The pretending is over. She's taking her stand. She's standing right in front of my tractor, and the wheels are almost on her. He's screeching as loud as she can screech, and when I see her, I, I jam in the clutch before it hits her, and and when you're pulling a heavy machine and you stop, suddenly there's this loud bang. And I, with my hand, I pull the throttle and I pull the kill switch at the same time. That roaring that's been in my ears for hours is silent. It is so silent, it's overpowering. And for the first time, I hear the water running in the drainage ditch. I hear the birds along the ditch bank singing, and I look down at that bird right in front of my big tires, and she, too, is silent. Well, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. We're all sitting there silent. The door of the cab is open. I had young children at that time. I think I used my parenting voice because there was no one there to make fun of me or laugh at me. I I just said to that bird, I think it was in my parenting voice. You gotta show me where it is. You gotta show me that nest. She stood there, silently. And then it was like she understood. She moved over to the other side of my tractor, just clear of the wheels, spread her wings, and sat down. I saw the eggs. Well, I still didn't know what to do. She was right beside my tractor. I started the engine, it roared to life. I thought she'd fly, she didn't move. With a hydraulic lever I brought that big disc up on its transport wheels and then I had to, with the other hydraulic lever I had to fold that 30 and it, 30 foot disc and it was cracking and crumbling, making loud noises right by that bird, but she sat there and that disc folded up real slowly and over the top of her I went. I set that disc back down again folded back out and I opened the throttle and that black diesel smoke rolled and pretty soon my tires are moving fast as quickly as I could I looked back through that dust and a long ways away now there was that square patch of unworked soil with that bird, that lone bird sitting there and I knew our time together was over that's the end of my story
0: Wow, that's an amazing story. And so one of the things you said before the interview, you said this particular story propelled the beginning of your storytelling career.
1: Right. What I think was so amazing, and this was it gave me a secret that I've known and never been able to really fully develop, what people liked about this story is that was a fairly common experience if you were on the land. And I started having people calling me and telling me their experience with this killdeer, where they're in a driveway and they and the bird would come out and go through a ritual, and they all knew the ritual, but somehow that what I what I discovered, what I discovered that I didn't plan to discover. See, I in front of that group in the city I wanted to tell those people that didn't look like my neighbors at all I wanted to tell those people who I was but what I realized years later by the response from that story I was telling me who I was and it was just the beginning uncovering those layers and layers and layers of forgotten memories that are our stories and why I think it worked after all these years of thinking about it, is that I invited people, and men particularly. I'm this man, and I'm this farmer, and all these things, and there's an image, and I invited men, macho men, to tell me their story that was tender, and they hadn't told anyone. And they would start by telling me a story they had and this man, I remember him telling me, and he's this big, burly farmer. I was at a farm, and he told me this story. And he said, I was down on the ground. I was looking for this nest, and I didn't see it, and I didn't see it, and the bird was still screeching. And he was, and he got tears in his eyes, and I was so shocked. He got tears in his eyes, and then he said, and she was just standing there screeching, just like your story. And then I looked up, and there were the eggs running down my tractor wheel. I'd run over And he had the most sad look on his face. And then he walked away from me real quickly because he was embarrassed. And what I think I did is I offered macho men or maybe men with macho jobs to reveal that other side of themselves. I think that's what I did.
0: The other thing I really like about the story is that you work in the difference between there's this bit about how industry keeps us separate from the natural world. And then when you turn the machine off, there's this silence. Mm-hmm. You know, like, one of the things we talk about in environmental education, I, I, teach, I teach survival skills to children, and there's this idea of the, the great green barrier, because many people don't even know how to ID any plant on the landscape, and it's sort of overwhelming. And there's also this idea of the wall of sadness, mm-hmm. that we're separate from the world. And one of the things I heard in your story was this idea that even though the machine was running, you still were connected to that landscape. And that idea actually is a lot rarer than you think. You know? And I loved the sensation. I really felt like I could identify with the turning the key and the machine goes off. And you could just, I could hear it in my head, that silence.
1: Yeah, it was surprising when I first performed in a church. And I was thinking, what do I do? And the, the minister said, tell that story of killed her. He said, it's in that silence that God has revealed. And I never thought of that, of course. <laughs> so he asked me to open with that story in his church. Hello, I'm Jim May, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf.
0: When I heard you telling the other story during the Oracle Awards that you told about... Um, uh the relationship tractor with my father yeah the- relationship with your father and the tractor I also heard the land in that story, mm-hmm. you know, and i um just want you to I just want to invite you to talk about how you feel like the land is represented in your stories in general,
1: well, the way I opened that night and I had thought about it a lot, uh, I said, I am of the land, and I was born. on the farm in the home where I had been in our family since my grandfather who came from Ireland in the potato famine as a little boy broke that prairie sod for the first time so that sod had never been broken by anyone but our family and that became a farm and it was just so powerful in my and I don't know why it was so powerful uh, my when my grandfather came over as a little boy and they faced incredible hardships in 1850 but they had lost their land to the english in ireland and so they came with a special tenacity i think for land and even though they ended up in, in the east coast in sweatshops they 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 had that incredible drive to somehow get to land, and they ended up on a wagon train and arriving uh, in I don't know what time of the 1850s, uh, probably the end or maybe even the 1860s, and and he didn't feel he got his share of the land where they settled, and so as this young married person with just his second son being born he moved to this prairie where there aren't roads to get a hold of some land and and faced all sorts of hardships so i think it was i went to ireland this past year for the first time and i saw a replica of the ship he traveled on and as this little boy and i don't know how they ever made it but uh I kind of understood the fierceness with which they they clung to the land. And I think it was just part of my... And the interesting thing is to me is both of my sons, my daughters are biologic, but both of my sons are adopted. And I don't know that that will be passed on. I don't know that. Even though my one son is running the farm now, I don't know if they have that tenacity that we were given way back
0: so in living a long life in one place
1: you have had the opportunity to see how america has changed i have and uh, i can just reflect it through the change in our uh, like when i graduated from high school partly because my father was much older he was 55 when i was born and, he, and so by the time i was a teenager he was he was getting up in years, and although he was a pioneer type of man, he always worked hard and had an opinion and he was a force i I just didn't think anyone could stand up to him and Here I was this little skinny kid, <laughs> but I was going to take over from him and i didn't know that then, but we had twenty big horses he loved big horses. see when he was a young man, they didn't have big horses, but he and when he got horses, he got a lot of them, and there were twenty of them, and they weighed generally up to seventeen hundred or up to a ton. And when I started, when I graduated from high school, we still had those twenty horses. And meanwhile, we got in a second tractor. Cause see, the World War II came along, and about the time the farms were going to update, the war came, and for about from 1941 until 1950 you really couldn't get any machines so part of my experience with that old time was the fact that there were 10 years when there was no progress everything was involved in the second world war and so when I came along in 1949 I graduated from high school and my brother was at college And so it was just my dad and myself and eventually my brother, the Korean War came, and all these things that shaped our lives, and we were both going to be in that. And uh, he stayed in school and I stayed on the farm because they didn't take me because my dad was too old to run the farm. I started producing the changes, and one of the changes was I said, we have to get rid of these horses. And that just broke my dad's heart. And he just couldn't bear the thought that all those big horses were no longer had any value.
0: In in the time between when you were born um, and now, how has the size of the farm changed?
1: Oh, drastically. Uh, people could make a living on 80 acres. The average size farm, going back to the homestead time, which would be the middle 1800s, 160 acres, it was considered ample for a person to raise a family and be a member of the community. And uh, right now, uh, we farm a little over a 1,000 acres. Uh, and that isn't necessarily good. And many farms now um, farm several thousand in our area where the land is flat. But we cultivated weeds now as spray and uh, is treated the seed, this genetically altered seed, and all that stuff that makes me very nervous because I think it's not sustainable. And that's the battle going on now as the absentee owners get more and more land and control everything with chemicals and yet we know it's it's really evident that this is not sustainable and and uh, so that worries me and, and that's part of my storytelling is trying to we have to advance and we grow big crops uh higher yields than we did before but uh we do it at a price and and I kind of, like on our farm, there was probably, when I was a little boy, it was probably part of eight other farms. And uh, and I went through a divorce right in the middle of uh, what they call the farm crisis of the 80s. And I lost some land, both to my wife, my former wife, and our farm probably would have been much bigger now. I got hit right in there, and I uh, and, and it was very hard for me to hang on interesting that's when i started coming forth as a storyteller and i always said storytelling and that's why i'm so passionate about it both the land and the storytelling i said storytelling saved my life because i think i would have become bitter with my losses at the same time i was being welcomed on the stage because i brought this thing from the horse era to the tractor era and the changes and i was bringing in stories like my when I was a little boy, my earliest experience was on a summer day. We had a big yard it never seemed to get mowed, but we had a big yard and uh, and a gravel road, and we were a mile from anyone in all directions. I hated that. Now I love it. We're a mile by anyone, but I hated it then because I didn't have any friends and and no one to play with. And so our life was kind of work, except my brother. And he, he was three and a half years older. I think he felt kind of put upon. But what I remember and what stuck in my memory was on a summer day around noon, across that road was a prairie pasture. And it wasn't until I plowed it in 1958 that it was not the prairie anymore. It still had buffalo walls on it. And coming across that prairie pasture where there was a railroad track about three miles away, and these these men, these tough-looking men with cigarettes, home-road cigarettes in their mouth, these gaunt men, about noon, one or maybe two of them would walk into the yard. And I was this little kid out there, and they'd go up to me and they'd say, Hey, kid, hey, kid, is your ma home? would you tell her i ain't yet in two days and so i would bring them to my mother who was always home and she would fix them a little plate and then she'd have me sit out on the back porch with them which was a pretty humble place so that they would know we were christian people and and she would bring that plate out to them and and I never forgot the way they looked when they smelled that food and the way they ate and how they'd take a piece of bread and polish that plate until it just shone because they didn't know when they were going to eat again. This was this was tough times, and I didn't realize till later that so many of them were World War One veterans who had just been dumped out. And then my dad would show up, and they got to do a little work, and they kind of expected to do that. Well, some of them stayed a few hours, and some of them stayed days, and and some of them stayed years living in the bunkhouse and part of the workforce on our farm. And I didn't know until almost 40 years later that these were my first storytellers, because at night, under that windmill in the summer and around a stove in the winter, I was fascinated by their stories, and they opened up this huge world that I didn't know anything about, because we stayed pretty much at home, we had a lot of work there. And these men opened up this world and this life they came from, and they didn't tell much about their families, these were drifters, and they left a lot of that pain, but sometimes in the story that pain of what they left would creep in. And I was fascinated by them. So when I got on stage the first time, I told stories like the hobos did about my life. That's all I knew. And I realized they had shaped me. And when I got into my first storytelling group, and I started telling stories about the hobos, and I could still remember the stories they told, and they said I was privileged And I didn't know I was privileged. I thought we had kind of a rough life having it out with these, and most of them alcoholics, but they were good men. They didn't stay sometimes, but they were good men, and they had dreams. And they were pretty rough, too, some of them. And they became my friends, but when I go back to my stories, I tell it like the hobos did.
0: So you've been involved in the storytelling revival for a long time. And your stories have had a big impact in terms of the revival, in terms of inspiring a lot of people.
1: I I came with the stories of the hobos. That was the only way. so I did personal stories. Most people when I came here, the first time, were telling folk tales and fairy tales and stories from history and stories from other cultures. And I came with these personal stories. They became a big debate over whether that was authentic or not. You know, but that's all I knew was my own life and uh and that's what uh, you know I didn't have I'd never been on a stage before (laughs) and most of these people are trained in theater you know and so it was kind of funny I mean I I just so it was magic to me tell us about the debate there were a lot of uh people I would I would hear this debate about whether personal stories were relevant Or whether, and it's true, they said uh, they become a place where you do therapy in front of people. The audience becomes your therapist and you dump your problems onto them. And so there was that big debate whether uh, people said they didn't want to hear personal stories and others were fascinated with personal stories. And it was like in the telling. And I found when I got deeper and deeper into my stories that I really needed a quite a bit of time between the thing happened and before I put it out there till I had worked through, especially involving a divorce where there was great pain. I found that I had to. Uh, but when I was on years later with those terminally ill people who had AIDS for the most part or cancer, and they were all ages, and they... The people with aids at that time were silent and somebody got a hold of a tape from here where i brought where I a therapist from this place in new jersey where they had a group of these people and the county was working with them and he brought the tapes back and when they played the tapes the people started talking about their lives and so they got the idea, and that was the first I heard of it. They finally called me and asked me if I had more tapes. That's all. They said they noticed that people started sharing after they heard my tapes, and they asked if there were any more, and there weren't. <laughs> and for some reason, I said, Would you want me to come? Now I really didn't know what I was going to do when I got there, but I said, And they said, Oh, we'll have to think about this. And that was the beginning of going and doing a workshop with 22 terminally ill people with AIDS. And it was the most life-changing experience I'd ever had as they opened up and told their stories. And I came back from that. I know, I know it changed my life. There were tragic stories, but there were stories of people who were dying who found out I remember this one woman said I will never see my granddaughter graduate from high school I'll never see her at a prom but she said there's only one and she looked like just the girl next door you know it looked perfect she said I found and she wouldn't tell her story in the group the 21 of the 22 told stories on film because it was filmed by a New York filmmaker and she passed. She went, and as soon as I went out, I was exhausted. I mean, we'd been through so much. And I sat at this table. It was in an area near the Atlantic Ocean, a marsh, and it was just beautiful. And I sat down at the table, and this woman sat down beside me, and she said, you want my story? I'm ready to tell you now. And she said, I'll never forget it. And her eyes would change color, and they looked like the Atlantic Ocean because they changed color, as she talked. She said, I won't see my daughter graduate. I probably won't ever see her at a prom. I I only have one thing I can cling to, and that's the truth. She said, I will not compromise the truth again and told me how she would go to the dentist and fill out the card. They were just starting to have them fill out if they would ever. And then they would take the card back, and then there would be a, bustle of activity and then someone come out in a white jacket and say you know we have insurance and we have these problems and we can't take you and she said i'd go on to another dentist's office and fill out the card the same way yes i'm hab positive and every time it would be the same thing and eventually this man would come out and he said come on in i can take care of you She said, I will not compromise the truth anymore. And I saw her as the most heroic person I'd ever seen in my life. They would keep in contact with me, and I couldn't handle the letters because I was so busy on that farm. But they were just asking me for stories because they were sick, and they were wondering if I had a story. to. And I became just this... I was in way over my head. Anything I'd planned to do, you know, and I became this person. And and it was exciting, but it was just more than I could handle. I'd unlocked their stories, and they gave me this power that I I didn't have, really. I said, I'm just the vehicle. (laughs) I'm the vehicle. But I... I somehow, without knowing, I created a safe place. And then their stories could come, and that's what I do. I think that's what I do. Somehow, in telling my stories, it creates a safe place. And I think it's because I didn't have any training, I didn't have anything, and it's like the killdeer. So many people have experienced that that they want to tell you their story, which immediately leads into a much bigger story. And I've had people stand in front of me and break down weeping men, and then they're so embarrassed because they didn't know that story was taking them to that memory of great pain. One of the things that's happened in the last 50 years is
0: that the way that men relate to each other has changed, and the way that women relate to men has changed. I mean, feminism has come. Mm -hmm. And it has blown through the doors and the gates and there definitely is you know I look at my son and they have this thing now where you you know I, if if you'd gone into a movie like if you if I was watching a videotape as a teenager and you'd walked into the room where I was sitting with all my friends we would all be sitting separately mm-hmm. if I go into the room where my son and his friends and and maybe one or two of them are dating maybe not but they're all sitting close together to me, almost uncomfortably close together it's like there's like there's been a shift in this generation, and there was definitely a shift in my generation towards a comfort with feelings
1: okay that um look at the veterans coming back from the war the World war two was uh, you know the veterans all came home they didn't talk, they didn't mention anything, they got a job, they got married so often now. Some of them are still living, and I'm involved with, or was involved with some of them. I had a radio show for many years, and I brought on three veterans from three wars. The one from the Second World War, uh, an elderly man, very comfortable-seeming. He said, I was in combat for 35 days straight with no break. He said there was nothing to talk about. He said we had our family, we had our job. I had the same job. There was nothing to talk about. That was, we put it behind us. Well, they buried it. And then the, uh, the uh, they had a, a Vietnam veteran and then a one from Iraq. And they, the Vietnam veteran, had much more descriptions, had suffered, uh, had gone through a lot of problems. Iraq, of course, was in uh, stress from it. And uh, But you could see there was that letting go of the feelings, you know. Uh, I did a story because I was a farmer. Uh, one of the reasons, a farmer is an image, <laughs> a, long, a farmer... They don't consider them feminine. They don't consider them, they consider them kind of macho. And you have that image because that's your work. And I did a story called Amazing Grace. And it was really a breakthrough where I talk about that I had never cried when my father died because he had never indicated to me he wanted a son that cried. And I remember feeling this aching in my throat for days and days from those unshed tears. And so I knew I hadn't done something right. And I tell the story of this little uh, niece of mine who was, uh, they were called Down syndrome now, mongoloid, they called it then. And she died when she was seven, and she'd come to our house on a farm because there with just family and could run through the woods and play with the animals and the pets and and she was okay and they would like to come and visit us because grace was safe there nobody made fun of her or treated her different and when she died at 7 i came in to our house, and I was busy then running a lot of, uh, quite a bit of land, and I had full-time help, and we were busy doing things. And I came in, and and there was the music was playing full bore in the house, it was loud, it was amazing. Grace was playing, and her name was Grace, and I came into this room, and here all my little children are dancing in the circle and all sobbing and even this little boy Marty who was only two and was adopted and he didn't know what was going on but he was sobbing with the rest of them because grace was gone and and I was on the outside because I was of that generation who could not show feeling even though and so anyway my wife at that time came and kind of took my hand and said in that music trying to remember this little girl and I got thinking of this little girl that would this little blonde fragile little girl who looked a lot like my daughters and she I would see her sitting in the wind the wind through the trees because we were living in the woods and she'd be sitting there and she'd be watching a bird and then she'd be sitting there long after the bird was gone and, and she lived in her own world and and I had seen her run with the other kids but she it was in her own world and I saw her again as the song played uh, amazing grace and I and that developed into what I called the story of grace how I learned to cry at In my 30s, I learned to give up that thing that I had been taught from the beginning because I'd never seen my dad cry until that one story I told the other night where he, he got off that tractor knowing he'd never drive a tractor again, and he cried, and I was so shocked and uh, and, uh, different men have told me that they like that story and I don't know what they get from it but they've told me they like that story of Amazing Grace
0: So, do you feel like stories like that like stories, like the story of the land um, of the Kildera and the story of your father crying that these stories encourage the people who hear them to learn some of these gifts?
1: My best audience I think where I have the most impact, although I don't see much change, is older men or older people. Uh, I do things in schools. I don't feel I'm as good maybe as I could be if I was different. Uh, People who are vulnerable, I think I'm very effective with them. They asked me to speak at funerals sometime because I if I know the person, I tell who they are and they come alive and the people laugh and then they cry. Um, we make people out of them. I I don't know. I, um, I. They get me in schools because the kids will sometimes see the white hair and kind of turn you off, especially in schools where they call it alternate schools where the kids are maybe 16 and 17 and won't there's nothing wrong with them except they turn everybody off and I tell them I go in and I my wife and I, I do this together because she's a history person and she her stories and she ran a museum for years and we enjoy doing things and they've started bringing us into these schools of course there's no money anymore but they bring us in some and both the three schools I've been to so far these alternate schools A kid will come in and look at you, and he's probably 16, 17 years old, and you can see in his face, he said, there's nothing here for me, and he sits down before they even introduce us and goes to sleep. I'm sort of shocked by that, and I think, well, we got to wake him up, and so I tell him about this bull that cornered me in the pen, and the roaring and, the, and all of a sudden he's leaning forward and he's the most attentive one there. And then I ask, did anybody see the bull? What did he look like? And and how scared I was, I was terrified he was gonna get me but there was only a post between us and he was pawing and, and this kid, and he's the first one with his hand up, he saw him. And I said, now there's your imagination. <laughs> and so I'm kind of good in that area. <laughs>
2: Hi, I'm Anne Glover, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. Okay, now do I go? Okay, Monkey, yeah, go ahead, your turn. Okay, hi, um, no, wait a second, um, wait, can we start over, because I forgot if I... No, Monkey, just say hi, this is Monkey. Hi, but Anne, what, they don't know me. No, but that's why you're introducing yourself. Hi, this is Monkey. No, I'm Monkey. I know, I'm just telling (laughs) you what to say. Hi, I'm Monkey, and this is you're listening to... And you're... but what if they're not listening anymore? They're listening, Monkey. Just talk to them. Um, okay, you're listening to The Art of Storytelling, but Anne... And what, Monkey? You say with Brother Wolf. Come on. Oh, yeah. Um, but why is he called Brother Wolf? It's his name. Well, his name's Eric, but he's calling himself Brother Wolf. Why don't we just say with Eric Wolf? Well, you can say that, Monkey. Okay. Hi, this is Monkey, and you're listening to Eric. No, but then they'll think I'm Eric. No, they won't, Monkey. They really won't. Okay. Hi, this is Monkey. Um, and. You got to wrap it up, Monkey. Wrap what right up? End. We're running out of time. Okay. Hi, this is Monkey, and, um, um, you're listening to the art of storytelling with Brother Wolf. Wolf. Well, Eric, is that it? That's it, monkey. Well done.
0: What is your offer? How would you like to hear from people?
1: Well, of course, I'd love to go to festivals because that's exciting, and uh, people talk to you, and they tell you things, and that's really fun. I think I'm the most effective in people who are retiring or have retired aren't in nursing homes yet but have retired because I sort of squeezed my father out of farming uh, just by things got complicated and he didn't feel as effective and he gradually did things that were not as demanding And it's hard, and now I'm discovering it's hard to go from being the boss for 40-50 years to go to this, you know, ask another person what you should do, this young guy. And, but I, I know there's a time, and the thing that frightens me about it is I don't want to get out of there and rent the farm out because, or rent it to my son because then uh, I've seen people start to die once they lose their purpose. And I think, I think I can really affect people because if they older people because if they get into their memories uh, I was part of a group in Illinois and they brought me back two or three times they called them memory makers and they became a group of people and I've never seen it any other place they got a grant from the state and a, a former librarian who was really a go-getter started this group and they bring me in to talk to them two or three times And pretty soon they were out going to retirement homes and showing people and going into schools and telling about their memories and merging with these kids. And they became so powerful and excited. I just couldn't couldn't believe the last time I was there how much they changed from the first time I was there. People need to feel they're contributing and they're affecting things. And when you don't do that anymore, you start dying. And you either close down, become boring, or you start dying. And you've got to be out on a cutting edge at making things happen. And, and I really believe that in stories we can we can do that, and we can connect with the young. We don't get turned off if we're telling our stories the way we need to tell them.
0: So, if a festival organizer or uh, someone in a retirement community who wants to bring you in, how would they contact
1: you? Oh. <laughs> Well, uh we think we'll get a website, I don't know, but actually uh, my phone is pretty good. Uh, my phone number is 507-373-4748 in Albert Lee, Minnesota, and uh, you can leave a message and I'll call you back. He might be out on the tractor. I may be out on the tractor, and I might not be there till evening, but I'll call you back because I want to talk to you. we got to get to know each other.
0: <laughs> I have an offer that I just want to remind you, if you're a first-time listener, that there's a website at artofstorytellingshow.com, and that site has over a 100 hours of interviews, just like this one, on every aspect of storytelling you can possibly imagine. Um, and if you like this interview, you'll like the other ones, too. So go to the website. You can listen through the website or you can go through iTunes if you're a technology-based person. And if not, you can always buy a CD through the mail. If you are slightly technology-based, you can go to www.artofstorytellingshow.com slash storytelling, and that's a free e-course. It's a nine-part e-course. It's called A Zen and the Art of Storytelling in Seven Simple Steps. And I've been told that it's an excellent e-course and that it's a very good resource. So go sign up for it. So you got any final words for the international storytelling community?
1: (laughs) All I've found is that, uh, and I've seen it happen in others, if you ever start, and it's never too late to start looking at your story. And unfortunately, you have to tell it to someone. You can't just tell it to yourself. You have to tell it to someone. Uh, In the original workshop I went to, the lady I didn't intend to tell a story, and she said, like an artist needs to paint a picture, we need to get it out of here, up on the wall, so we in the world can look at it together. And she somehow created an atmosphere as all of these strangers formed a circle. And she listened in such a way, no matter what they told, it was like it was the most important thing she'd ever heard. And somehow that opened the door for people, you know, when someone really listens to you, you start telling them the truth. And that's what happened. And that formed a community. And the people, the program was over at 4 o'clock. I left St. Paul at 10 o'clock that night because we'd all gone out and eaten together. And we became so close that I drove home that night to my home, two hour drive wondering what the heck had happened to me that I felt closer to these people than I did to the people I I worked with all at the time and uh, I realized that's what the personal story does when you start sharing you the barriers drop and you and some of them are still my friends from that original workshop so to me that's the secret that's kept me excited all these years
0: I really like this idea we've been talking about of of listening. Mm-hmm. And we talked about listening at the beginning of this conversation because we talked about listening to the land. And we talked about the value of developing a relationship with the place you're in. But we're also here talking about the value of, of developing a relationship with the people you're with. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that skill set as surprising as this can be, is almost the same in some way. That that when you listen to land, you develop your ability to listen to people, and when you listen to people, you develop that great ability to listen to the land. Thank you, Michael, so much for coming on my show.
1: Well, it's a real pleasure, Eric. uh, It's exciting to, uh, you kind of dredged up the memories, and uh, that was kind of exciting. (laughs) This
0: guest has written a post to the blog that can be read at www.artofstorytellingshow.com. This post includes a bio and a link to the guest's website, plus other additional information about our discussion. If you want to respond to this show, you can find this post and share your thoughts through the comment system in the blog comment box. If you wish to join a future show as an audience member, go to www.artofstorytellingshow.com slash alerts and sign up to the email alert system. You can buy CDs of shows and preloaded iPods on the website. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This show is produced and hosted by me, Brother Wolf, and I am responsible for its content. It is released under a Creative Commons non-derivative and non-commercial license. That means you can copy it and you can give it away, but you can't splice it up or sell it. High-definition versions of this show are considered copyrighted, all rights reserved.